In the baseball world, Bill Buckner is known for one moment in time. The lanky ball player exists in most people's minds as a statue bent at the waist. Over the course of his long career, he's assumed millions of poses, but in this freeze frame, Buckner is bent at the knees near the first baseline, his glove between his legs, his glove not touching the ground as it should be, but a few inches above just high enough for a dribbling grounder to scoot under. That dribbling grounder from New York Mets batter Mookie Wilson led to Ray Knight scoring the winning run in extra innings. Two nights later, the Mets won the World Series. Bill Buckner was villainized. He was blamed for losing the World Series. He was booed by Red Sox fans the next year. He received death threats. But the truth is much more complicated, and Buckner much more than this one moment, this singular pose. For instance, Bill Buckner, scapegoat of the 86 World Series, has more lifetime hits than Reggie Jackson. He has more lifetime hits than Ernie Banks and Mickey Mantle. Buckner has more lifetime hits than Ted Williams. In fact, he ranks 66th all-time in hits and doubles. He also won the batting title in 1980 and has a lifetime batting average of 289, an incredible feat over a 22-year career. But people don't like complexity. We take shortcuts. We play the game of telephone with someone's life and use our emotions like razor blades to scrape away the troublesome facts that interfere with our outrage and righteousness. In the beginning, there is the story, but over time only the echoes of a story linger, until the echo becomes the story. In this three-part series, I trace three echoes back to the original source to understand what really happened and why things turned out the way they did during the games, and after. In part one, there's Bill Buckner, and then the tragic story of Donnie Moore, who pulled many others into the tragedy with him. And finally, there's Rick Ankiel, a story so fascinating, it's truly worth the time it takes to tell the full tale. You're listening to the Midnight Library of Baseball, where there are no loud noises, no jarring music, only nostalgic, thought-provoking, emotional stories about baseball. I'm Ben Orlando. Bill Buckner was well into the twilight of his career, bruised and battered by the time he jogged out to first base that fateful night in 1986. Buckner was born in 1949 in Vallejo, California, and was already on Major League Baseball's radar by his late teens. It was Buckner's mother who signed him up for Little League, but his father, who died when Buckner was a teenager, was very active in his children's ball playing. Whether it was Bill and his two brothers in baseball, 
with her sister, Jan, in softball. According to Buckner's mother, the family used to spend hours practicing baseball in the living room. And Bill was so good, his mother lied about his age so he could start Little League a year early. And according to his brother, little Bill Buckner, the smallest, youngest kid on the field, was quickly running the show. Quote, Here's this little kid with freckles, showing everyone how to do it. End quote. California Angels scout Joe Gordon said that teenage Buckner, quote, had the finest swing I saw anywhere on the West Coast and probably is one of the best young hitters in baseball, end quote. In 1968, Buckner was drafted by the Dodgers. In 1970, scout Goldie Holt told Dodgers vice president Al Campanis, quote, Buckner has so much ability and is so far advanced that I would put him in left field and leave him there against all kinds of pitching. End quote. That same year, Ted Williams, then manager of the Washington Senators, and the last major league player with a season batting average over 400, watched Buckner take batting practice in spring training and praised Buckner for his form. Ted Williams predicted that Buckner would win a batting title one day, and Buckner did in 1980. But Bill Buckner's greatest attribute might also have contributed to what happened in 1986. According to Dodgers manager Walter Alston, Bill Buckner had a fiery temper and an intense personality and work ethic. This intensity and drive caused him to play through injuries. At the start of his career, Buckner played outfield and played it well, making many spectacular plays. But in 1975, he injured his ankle and moved to first base. Maybe he would have recovered fully if he'd taken time off. Maybe he wouldn't have. But Buckner pushed on, playing injured time and again. From writer Jeff English, quote, He never fully recovered. For the remainder of his career, he was forced to rely on a series of elaborate pre-game rituals in order to force his body onto the baseball field. End quote. And even with an ankle injury that never fully recovered, Buckner went on to win a batting title in 1980 and played at an elite level for the next 15 years. But what really happened in the World Series that would come to define Bill Buckner? First, the 1986 World Series was a powder keg the moment the Red Sox entered the picture. Built into this story is four generations of Boston fans, hopeless and bitter, after 68 years without a championship title. Men, women, and children who used baseball as an outlet for the inner turmoil they didn't know how to deal with. This is sports, for better or worse, for millions of people. And for Red Sox fans, this was a chance for redemption. Maybe I'm struggling in my job. Maybe my relationship is tanked. Maybe my life hasn't turned out the way I'd imagined. Maybe I'm depressed and anxious and fight to get out of bed in the morning. But if the Red Sox can finally win the World Series, somehow my life will be better. My life will have meaning, if only for that moment, if only for a little while and that little boost will get me through the next day, 
the next week and month. And if this miracle is possible, if after such a long drought, the Red Sox can break the curse of the Bambino, maybe something extraordinary is possible with my life. In 1986, the Red Sox make the playoffs, and hope rises. They defeat the California Angels in the American League Championship, and hope climbs even higher. Then the Red Sox take a three games to two lead in the World Series, and are leading game six with two outs and two strikes, and hope reaches out and touches the top of the mountain before it's smacked out of the sky. The fall is long and hard, and when hope finally crashes to the ground, it's like a meteor. It crushes happiness and excitement. It causes bitterness and rage. It wants someone to blame, to hate, to murder. And it finds Bill Buckner. For a brief aside, I think it's important to explain the curse of the Bambino, which many of you are familiar with, but some of you aren't. The Curse of the Bambino may be one of the top baseball voodoo hexes ever to have existed. Prior to 2004, 1918 was the last year the Red Sox won the World Series, and helping the cause at the time was 23-year-old Babe Ruth, who pitched for the Red Sox and went 2-0 in the World Series, giving up only one run in 17 innings. In 1919, the Red Sox decided to sell Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. Before the sale, the Red Sox were one of the most successful franchises in baseball. After the sale, not so much. The Red Sox plummeted in the rankings soon after. And after 1918, they reached the playoffs or World Series 10 times before finally winning it all in 2004. And the curse was so serious that in the 1970s, there was a road sign in Boston that read, Reverse Curve, and someone graffitied the sign to read, Reverse the Curse. Now you'd expect the sign was put there to inform drivers and help them be safer. But city officials in Boston would not touch the sign in its new form, and it remained there, like that, for 50 years, until 2004 when the Red Sox finally won the World Series. This is all to say that people's lives were wrapped up in the Red Sox, in the World Series, and in what happened with Bill Buckner. But what happened in the rest of the game? The Red Sox were up three games to two, needing only one more game to win it all. And in the eighth inning of game six, they were leading three runs to two. And that's when Red Sox manager John McNamara decided to use a pinch hitter for pitcher Roger Clemens. And if you substitute a pinch hitter for the pitcher, it means the pitcher has to come out of the game. Clemens had pitched seven strong innings, and the Red Sox were winning. So why would McNamara pull one of the best pitchers in the game with so much on the line? Not only was Roger Clemens one of the greatest pitchers of all time, but he put up some of the best numbers of all time in 1986. Clemens led the league in wins with a ridiculous 24 and led the league in earned run average at 2.48. He also pitched a lot of innings and threw 10 complete games, so he'd proved he could go for the long haul.
It was a controversy for years, as manager John McNamara swore that Clemens walked up to him and said, that's all I can pitch, and showed the manager his finger where the skin was torn away. But according to Clemens, he never said anything close to that and wanted to keep pitching. According to Clemens, McNamara decided the better move was to use a pinch hitter, since pitchers are normally terrible hitters. Clemens admitted his finger was banged up, but that had never stopped him before. And it is hard to believe that someone so competitive as Clemens would have wanted to leave the game. Years later, Mike McNamara, the manager's son, confirmed his father's story, saying that McNamara had talked to Clemens, who told him he was running out of gas and his finger was torn. And Mike McNamara's argument was that, considering Clemens' excellent performance in the game, two runs, only one of them earned, and eight strikeouts, his father would have been crazy to pull him unless Clemens had said something. Whatever the true story, Clemens left the game, and closer Calvin Schiraldi came in, and soon gave up a run to tie the score 3-3. Fast forward to the top of the 10th. The Red Sox scored two runs to go up 5-3. Now also in that inning, Bill Buckner stepped to the plate. And what had happened in all three of the previous series wins was that McNamara replaced Buckner late in the game with Dave Stapleton. Remember, Buckner had been playing injured for years. He was suffering from a variety of injuries now. And ever since his ankle injury in 1975, Buckner had needed to perform a long pregame ritual to prepare his body. But in this game, in the 10th inning, McNamara left Buckner in the game even after the Mets pitcher beamed Buckner in the hip. In defending his decision, McNamara said he left Buckner in the game because he felt Buckner deserved to be on the field when they won. In the bottom of the 10th inning, the first two Mets hitters quickly flied out, meaning the Red Sox were up by two with two outs and only one more out needed to win their first World Series in 68 years. Imagine, sitting in the stands, or at home on the edge of your seat as a Red Sox fan. Your team is up by two runs, with two outs, and no one on base. The odds are significantly in your favor. But at the same time, if you are a Red Sox fan, at the back or front of your mind is the thought, the phrase, the curse of the Bambino. Third base umpire Harry Wendelstedt had a tradition of collecting the hats of third basemen on winning World Series teams, and in the 10th, with two outs, he asked Red Sox third baseman Wade Boggs for his hat. It's not over yet, Boggs told Wendelstedt, and returned to his crouch. The next hitter was Gary Carter, who managed a single to keep the Mets alive. Next up was rookie Kevin Mitchell, and Mitchell scored a hit. The next hitter was Ray Knight, who, with two strikes, scored another base hit, driving in Carter from second 
and sending Kevin Mitchell to third. Now the score was 5-4, Red Sox still ahead. Finally, McNamara pulled Calvin Schiraldi, replacing him with Bob Stanley. Imagine the anxiety at this point in the players, in the announcers, in the fans. I'm feeling a bit anxious now, and I'm recalling a moment that happened and played out almost 40 years ago. The next batter was Mookie Wilson. With two balls and two strikes, Bob Stanley throws a breaking ball that drops and hits the dirt in front of Wilson, who dives to get out of the way. The Red Sox catcher, Rich Gedman, is not able to field the ball, and Kevin Mitchell races home to score the tying run. Mookie Wilson stays alive for 10 pitches, and on that 10th pitch, he hits a dribbling grounder toward first. Bill Buckner, knowing the speed of Wilson, charges the ball, bends down, but does not bend enough, and the ball rolls under his glove. And Ray Knight runs home and jumps on home plate. One reason for the outrage that followed was the supposed ease of the play. From journalist Chris Landers, quote, the ball seems to mosey along, almost slowing down as it passes first base. It's not just the sort of play that you expect a major leaguer to make 100 times out of 100. It's the sort of play that everybody watching at home, fairly or unfairly, could imagine themselves making. End quote. So before Bill Buckner made his infamous error, there were many, many people who contributed to the loss. And there was also a chance that, had Buckner fielded the ball cleanly, Mookie Wilson would have reached first safely, and Ray Knight would have scored anyway. Mookie Wilson was known as a very fast runner. In fact, in an ESPN poll of the fastest Mets of all time, Mookie Wilson ranked number two. And remember, this was game six, not game seven. In Game 7, two nights later, the Red Sox jumped out to a 3-0 lead in the second. The Mets came back and tied the game until the 7th when they pulled ahead. In the 8th, down 6-3, Bill Buckner hit a single which started a rally, but the Red Sox managed only two runs, and they would not get any closer. The Mets won the game 8-5, and won the World Series. When I think about young Bill Buckner practicing baseball in his living room with his family, dedicated and determined to the game he loved, I think of him at first base in the 10th inning with that ball from Mookie Wilson rolling toward him. And I think, there is nothing this man wants more in the world in this moment than to cleanly field this ball and help his team win. And I wonder, what would it have been like for every baseball fan watching the game to have stood there and sincerely felt the pain Buckner must have been feeling? It's heartbreaking seeing him there, devastated. But the fans, the media, they did not stand with him in a place of understanding.
Contrast this dynamic with what happened in 2023 with Philly shortstop Trey Turner. Turner had been traded from the Dodgers and typically posted amazing numbers year after year. But for months in Philadelphia, Turner continued to slump, to struggle, until the Phillies manager dropped Turner from third in the batting lineup to seventh. This is when sports radio host Jack Fritz decided to try to lift up the athlete instead of tear him down. On his show, Fritz urged fans to recognize how much this human being was struggling, and why not stop yelling and give the man support. So the next game, when Trey Turner walked up to the plate, anxious and defeated, thousands upon thousands of Philadelphia fans gave Turner a standing ovation. Can you imagine? You're in a horrible slump. You feel like you're letting down all of these people. And suddenly they rise and give you a hug the size of a stadium. They tell you, it's okay. We love you. And Turner quickly responded, homering in the next game. A month after the ovation, Turner's batting average had climbed 26 points. His home runs and RBIs had nearly doubled and his OPS, which is on-base percentage plus slugging percentage, jumped 99 points, which is huge. Turner said, quote, I appreciated it a lot. My family appreciated it a lot too, and it seemed to be the big turnaround factor, end quote. From Jack Fritz, quote, This is a human moment, and I think it just connected with people on a human level, end quote. How nice is that? Now imagine at the start of Game 7 of the 1986 World Series, Bill Buckner walks onto the field after just making the most painful mistake of his baseball career. And the fans, instead of yelling, instead of calling for his head on a pike, rise from their seats and give this heartbroken, suffering human a standing ovation. This is a human moment, Jack Fritz said. But we are humans, all the time. What would happen if we remembered this more often? This is the end of part one. For part two, in continuing to trace echoes back to the source, I'll explore the echo of Donnie Moore, whose life ended tragically, and whose life was also intertwined with the Red Sox in 1986. Moore did not talk to many people about the pain he was experiencing, but the one person he did share with, it turned out, was none other than Bill Buckner. Next time on the Midnight Library of Baseball. If you enjoyed this show, and my other episodes, please leave a review on iTunes or one of the other podcasting hosts. I also welcome suggestions for future shows or other kinds of comments. You can find the podcast at my website, midnightlibraryofbaseball.com, and you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and a variety of other platforms. You can also find me on Instagram, Midnight Library of Baseball, and on Facebook. 
The music is A Long Way by Sergi Pavkin at Pixabay. Good night.